This show was produced by and first broadcast on Radio Kidnappers, Hawke's Bay's community access radio station. Thanks to New Zealand On Air for enabling us to put Hawke's Bay voices on air. Starry Nights. Starry Nights is a program about astronomy, what there is to see in the night sky, and how it may have got there. We'll explore some of the myths and legends associated with objects in the night sky, and we'll examine some of the technologies that are helping us to unravel the mysteries of the universe. My name is Gary Sparks. I'm the director of the Holt Planetarium in Napier, the sponsors of Starry Nights. Now, before we start on this month's program, just like to mention the fact that the Holt Planetarium is sponsoring also this weekend the Matariki Lectures, Stories of the Stars. Lectures are tonight at 7 p.m., tomorrow night at 7 p.m., and 2 p.m. on Sunday afternoon. Uh, there are plenty of seats available, so if you're interested, the seats are $20 a piece. Show lasts about one hour. Special presentation by the Hawke's Bay Astronomical Society. Matsuriki, Stories of the Stars. All five of the naked eye planets will be visible during July, but not all at the same time. Mercury is a morning sky object throughout July, although on the morning of the 31st it will rise at the same time as the sun. The best opportunities for seeing Mercury will be early in the month, about an hour before sunrise. For the first few days of July, the planet will be some 6 degrees up near 6.45 a.m. and some 16 degrees to the left of the reddish-coloured star Betelgeuse, the star being slightly higher. Mercury will be 30 degrees round to the north from east. The planet is at its greatest elongation for the month, 22 degrees from the sun on the 5th. For the rest of the month, its distance from the sun will be decreasing. On the morning of the 8th, Mercury, now brighter at magnitude 0.0, will be just over 5 degrees to the right of the crescent moon, and also less than half a degree above the 3.0 magnitude star Zeta Tau. During July, Mercury moves through parts of four constellations, Taurus, Orion, Gemini, and Cancer. Venus and Mars are evening objects during July. The month begins with Mars 7 degrees above and to the right of Venus. During the first part of July, the faster-moving Venus will gradually catch up with Mars, until on the 13th, the two are only half a degree apart. At 6 p.m., Venus, over 100 times brighter than Mars, will be to the right of and slightly lower than Mars. The previous evening, the Moon, a very thin crescent, only 5% sunlit, will be about 6 degrees below the planet's. It will be best to look about 6 p.m. while the moon is a few degrees up. On the 13th, the moon, now 10% sunlit, will be 9 degrees above the planets. During the rest of July, Venus draws ahead of Mars. The two planets pass close to the star Regulus, Venus on the 22nd and Mars on the 30th. Jupiter and Saturn both rise well before midnight during July, with Jupiter rising 100 minutes after Saturn. In fact, these days Saturn is rising just after 8 p.m., By the end of the month, Saturn rises as the sun sets. Hence, both are well-placed for mid-to-late-evening viewing. The moon passes the two planets towards the end of July. On the morning of the 25th, the moon, just past full, will be 3 degrees from Saturn at 6 a.m. On the evening of the 26th, the moon will be just over 5 degrees from Jupiter soon after they rise. Their separation will increase during the night. 
There is a cloud of debris surrounding our solar system. It's known as the Oort Cloud, and it is the source of most of the comets in our solar system. It was first proposed by Jan Oort as a way to explain why there were so many long-period comets and why they can appear from almost any direction. It's estimated that there are about 100 billion small icy bodies in the Oort cloud spread throughout a sphere about 50,000 astronomical units from the Sun. Through our studies of comets, we've learned a great deal about about the Oort cloud, but we still don't fully understand how it came to be. One of the more popular ideas is that the Oort cloud formed during the Great Migration of Planets. According to the NICE model, for example, a gravitational resonance between Jupiter and Saturn drove Uranus and Neptune farther from the Sun. This shift of planetary orbits cleared debris from the solar system. Some of it was thrown to the inner solar system, causing the late heavy bombardment, while most of it was scattered outward to form the Oort cloud. This makes sense, but a new study suggests that's not how it formed. Most of what we understand about the origins of the Oort cloud comes from computer simulations. It takes a great deal of computing power to model the orbits of small bodies over millions of years, so most simulations look at the evolution of the Oort cloud in stages. This new work simulates the orbital evolution of small bodies from the early solar system to the Oort cloud as a single model, a process that spans billions of years. What their simulation shows is that the Oort cloud did not form during a single, relatively short-lived period of the early solar system. The bodies of the Oort cloud aren't even entirely from our solar system. Instead, the cloud has multiple sources. Part of it is remnant material from the Sun's protoplanetary disk that has always been in the outer solar system. Part of the debris came from the inner solar system and was ejected outward by the larger planets, but some of the Oort cloud's debris came from other solar systems. When the sun was young, it was part of a stellar nursery consisting of about a thousand stars. Material on the outer edge of nearby stellar systems was captured by the sun's gravity, and most of this material settled within the Oort cloud. Overall, the simulation suggests that the Oort cloud formed relatively late in the history of our solar system, and only entered its present form after the sun had left its stellar nursery. We know now that a few comets come from other star systems, but if this model is correct, even some of the local comets from the Oort cloud may be extrasolar as well. It's good to remember how little we know about the outer solar system. Humans only really began observing it within the past 100 years, and given the constraints on those observations, there are still plenty of things we don't know about. For example, researchers recently found an object almost the size of a dwarf planet that is inbound to the inner solar system, with an estimated orbital period of over 3 million years, more than the lifetime of the modern human species. The object, originally known as 2014 UN271 Bernadinelli-Bernstein, was first observed in 2014, but first noted on June the 19th, 2021, by Pedro Bernardelli Bernardelli and Gary Bernstein, and now has its own Wikipedia page. The data on the object was collected by the Dark Energy Survey over the course of four years, but now new observing platforms are being brought to bear on this novel object. With those additional observational platforms come additional insights. New observations taken on June the 22nd with the 0.51-meter Sky Gems Remote Telescope in Namibia reveal clear cometary activity with a 15-arc-second coma, Luca Buzzi reported on the Minor Planet mailing list. As a result, the Minor Planet Center has now officially designated this object a comet, Comet Bernardinelli-Bernstein, C-2014-UN-271. Oh, that's a mouthful. 
Right now, 2014 UN 271 is expected to reach its perihelion, in other words, closest point to the sun, just outside the orbit of Saturn, before returning to the depths of the Oort cloud for another spin around the sun. The orbit immediately drew attention because it showed the comet coming from deep in the Oort cloud, a group of planetesimals surrounding the sun at icy distances of about 1,000 to 100,000 astronomical units. Its size is estimated to be between 100 and 370 kilometers wide, making it possibly the biggest Oort cloud object ever observed. Having already passed Neptune's orbit, 2014 UN 271 is well on its journey into the inner solar system. As it draws closer to the Sun, astronomers expect it to get the coma and tail characteristics of comets as its surface starts to evaporate in the heat. Unfortunately, it likely won't be bright enough to present a spectacular display like other well-known comets, but it will be closely observed now that its presence is more widely known. There is already talk of potentially sending a mission to rendezvous with it when it reaches its perihelion point in 2031. Whatever resources are eventually brought to bear on it, its mere existence will serve as an important reminder of how little we know about what's out there in the far reaches of our solar system. In 1181 CE, Chinese and Japanese astronomers noticed a guest star as bright as Saturn briefly appearing in their night sky. In the thousand years since, astronomers have not been able to pinpoint the origins of that event. New observations have revealed that the guest star was a supernova, and a strange one at that. It was a supernova that did not destroy the star, but left behind a zombie that is still shining. Guest stars are what modern astronomers now call call novae or supernovae, and the brightness of the event in 1181 CE, described as being as bright as Saturn, and its longevity, visible to the naked eye for 185 days, means that it was almost certainly from a supernova. For decades, a pulsar wind nebula in the same region of the sky was thought to be the remnants of that supernova, but new estimates have placed the age of that nebula to be around 7,000 years old, far too old to account for the records from 1181. Searching through the archives from NASA's Wide Field Infrared Survey Explorer, a team led by astronomers at the University of Hong Kong have found an alternate and much stranger possible origin story. The astronomers found one of the hottest known wolf rayet stars, which they call Parker's star, named for one of the study's leaders. Wolf rayet stars are massive stars surrounded by hot envelopes of gas and are some of the brightest stars in the sky. Surrounding Parker's star is a nebula, dubbed PA30. The nebula has an expansion velocity of around 1,100 kilometers per second, and given its current size, it likely formed from a supernova event about a 1,000 years ago, right in line with the guest star observations. The expansion speed of 1,100 kilometers per second is far slower than a typical supernova remnant, doesn't sound that slow to me, and is usually connected with a rare kind of supernova that doesn't completely detonate its star. That fact would also explain the existence of Parker's star. It's a zombie remnant that should have died a thousand years ago, but is still living. These kinds of supernova are extremely rare, and this observation could mean this is the only known such zombie remnant in the Milky Way. And we wouldn't know it if it weren't for those astute astronomers a thousand years ago. You're listening to Radio Kidnappers, the voice of Hawke's Bay, broadcasting on 1431 AM, 104.7 FM, and live streaming www.radiokidnappers.org.nz. This is Starry Nights. 
In the last few weeks, New Zealand has signed a space treaty over moon exploration and resources. A Canterbury Spit has been announced as a rocket launch base, and Rocket Lab has been tasked with designing two photon spacecraft for 2024 scientific mission to Mars. Headline news, but there's plenty more happening in the space industry in this country, more than most people realize. Former NASA space engineer Eric Dalstrom is working in New Zealand to help connect people in the industry globally. He is an international space, space consultant. When he arrived here four years ago, he and his wife started a directory of the companies and projects in the industry here. Eventually, they listed 240 of them, but it wasn't easy to do. Coming from California, I just didn't realize how hard it would be to get people in New Zealand to admit to doing amazing things, he says. New Zealand has a lot of capability and a lot of hidden talent involved in space. The industry here is worth $1.75 billion, according to a Deloitte report commissioned by the Ministry of Business, Innovation and Employment. Those figures relate to 2018 and 2019, and it's only been growing since then. It employs about 5,000 people and another 7,000 in support services. Services. The 240 space-related companies paint a broad brush. They range from dark skies tourism to satellite data collection, launching payloads and a reusable space plane to take satellites into orbit from Oumaru. There's a giant space radar in Naseby tracking satellite debris, a world-first passenger transport trial of a self-flying all-electric air taxi in Canterbury, and Air New Zealand has a partnership with NASA to collect data feeding into global climate science models. Satellite data collection will help vintners check their grapes, the Defence Force police our territorial waters, and predict solar storms that could take out our electricity grid. The South Island in particular is dotted with space businesses, which has one astronomer saying it's now a bit like Cape Canaveral. Except Dahlstrom says it's better than that. You don't realize how much trouble there is launching from Florida with all the aircraft flying into Miami. They have to be shut down for hours for every launch. And so here, with, so here without much traffic to the east and south, Rocket Lab has lots of opportunities to launch. As well as lack of aircraft traffic, low population, geographic isolation, clear dark skies, and good internet, Dalsam says New Zealand has what he calls the power of small. The New Zealand Space Agency is something less than 40 people, and you can get all the decision makers in one room, and get decisions made very quickly. And so that is such a contrast to the big space-faring countries around the world, where the bureaucratic inertia is so large. The New Zealand government has been very good about being very responsive to new ideas and approving things while maintaining a New Zealand perspective on what should be allowed, he says. When we talk to our friends around the world, everybody knows about New Zealand. It's held up as a real model for how to get a lot of activity going. Astronomer Ian Griffin, who is the director of the Otago Museum, says the new industries are bringing real economic benefits and can only grow. There isn't a space where we're just importing people, it is a space where Kiwis are really active and typical Kiwi ingenuity is paying off in spades. These startups are starting up all over the place. Access to space is getting easier and cheaper, and that means business opportunities are growing. And I think anywhere there are business opportunities, there are Kiwis who are trying to make a buck. And that's a really good thing, because these are high-tech, high-paying jobs that speak well to the future of our country. Well, good on us. Let's give ourselves a pat on the back. 
I'd just like to stop here for a moment and mention our sponsors, the Holt Planetarium in Napier. The Planetarium is open to the general public every Sunday evening at 7 p.m. No bookings are required. One main show starts about quarter past seven. Admission prices, $10 for adults, $6 for students and seniors, $25 for a family of up to six. Suitable for all ages, as I mentioned, no bookings are required. The planetarium is located on Chamber Street on the grounds of Napier Boys High School. If you're interested in finding out more about the planetarium, give us a call, 8344-345, or just visit our website. And once again, a reminder, the Matiriki Lectures, Stories of the Stars, are on this weekend, tonight, tomorrow night, and Sunday afternoon. More information about that, or to make a booking, once again, just ring the Planetarium, 8344-345, or visit the website. Dark matter is an extremely good theory. It is supported by a wealth of observational and computational data, which is why it's part of the standard model of cosmology. But dark matter hasn't been directly observed, so sometimes even strong supporters of dark matter are motivated to look at the alternatives. The most popular alternative is known as Modified Newtonian Dynamics, MOND, also known as Modified Gravity. The evidence we have for dark matter assumes that our understanding of gravity is correct. Both Newtonian gravity and general relativity have been strongly confirmed by observations, so the dark matter assumption is perfectly reasonable. But MOND assumes that on a fundamental, our our understanding of gravity is slightly wrong. The gravitational theories of both Newton and <clears throat> pardon me, both Newton and Einstein depend upon a basic phenomenon known as the strong equivalence principle. That is, the inertial mass of an object, how it resists a change in motion, and its gravitational mass, how it pulls on other masses, are proportional. The upshot of this principle is that all matter falls at the same rate in a gravitational field. This effect has been confirmed by so-called Iotvos experiments. The strong equivalence principle is true to within one part in 10 to the power 14, which is the current observational limit. In the most common versions of MOND, the inertial mass of an object isn't proportional to gravitational mass because of the external field effect. In Newtonian physics, the inertial mass of an object is an inherent property that exists independent of anything around it. In MOND, the inertial mass depends on how the gravitational mass of the object depends on the gravitational mass of the object as well as the net gravitational pull from the rest of the universe. In other words, inertial mass is an emergent property rather than an inherent one. MOND was introduced to explain the observed motion of matter in galaxies, which was also a motivation for the introduction of dark matter. In most galaxies, most of the visible matter is concentrated near the centre, so stars near the centre of a galaxy should move faster than stars near the edge, just as the inner planets of our solar system move faster than the outer planets. But what we observe is that stars in most galaxies tend to move at similar speeds regardless of their distance from the centre. In astronomy speak, we say the observed rotation curve doesn't match the prediction. In the dark matter model, these curves are explained by the fact that dark matter comprises most of the matter in a galaxy and surrounds the galaxy in a halo, so most matter isn't concentrated at the center. Mond explains the curves by assuming the gravitational pull from other galaxies tweaks the inertial mass of stars further from the center, which is why they move faster than expected. But if Mond is correct, there should be a correlation between the rotation curve of a galaxy and the distribution of other nearby galaxies. 
This is where this new study comes in. The team used the Spitzer Photometry and Accurate Rotation Curves, SPARC database, good name, to study the rotation curves of 175 galaxies. They compared the rotation curve of each galaxy to the average distribution of nearby galaxies. If the dark matter model is correct, the distribution of nearby galaxies should not affect the rotation curve. If MOND is correct, the distribution and resulting external field effect, EFE, should affect the curves. Surprisingly, shockingly even, their study found a clear effect. In galaxies with the strongest external fields, the EFE was confirmed with a confidence of 8 to 11 sigma. Experiments are typically taken as confirmed if the effect is above 5 sigma. The team also didn't see a curve effect for galaxies with weak external fields. Overall, this is really good evidence for a single study. What's more, the team expected the study to disprove MOND, so they're just as surprised by the results. Overall, this is a fascinating study. It doesn't disprove dark matter, since numerous studies support the effects of dark matter, but it does support an aspect of modified gravity. It's an unexpected result, and it needs to be studied further. MOND has long been out of favor among astronomers, but this study shows we shouldn't believe the legend of its fall quite yet. If you've been following developments in astronomy over the last few years, you may have heard about the so-called crisis in cosmology, which has astronomers wondering whether there might be something wrong with our current understanding of the universe. This crisis resolves around the rate at which the universe expands. Measurements of the expansion rate in the present universe don't line up with measurements of the expansion rate during the early universe. With no indication for why these measurements might disagree, astronomers are at a loss to explain the disparity. The first step in solving this mystery is to try out new methods of measuring the expansion rate. In a paper published recently, researchers at University College London, UCL, suggested that we might be able to create a new independent measure of the expansion rate of the universe by observing black hole neutron star collisions. Let's back up for a minute and discuss where things stand right now. When we look out into the universe, galaxies that are further away appear to be moving away from us faster than closer ones, because space itself is expanding. This is expressed by a number known as the Hubble constant, which is usually written as the speed, in kilometers per second, of a galaxy one megaparsec MPC away. One of the best ways to measure the Hubble constant is to observe objects known as Cepheid variables. Cepheids are stars that brighten and dim regularly, and their brightness just happens to line up with their period, the time it takes to dim and brighten again. The regularity of these objects makes it possible to estimate their distance, and a survey of many Cepheids gives us a Hubble constant of about 73 kilometers per second per megaparsec. Type 1a supernova are another common type, another common object with a known brightness, and they also give a Hubble constant hovering around 73 kilometers per second per megaparsec. On the other hand, you can measure the expansion of the universe during its earliest phase by observing the afterglow of the Big Bang, known as the cosmic microwave background radiation, the CMB. Our best measurement of the CMB was taken by the European Space Agency's Planck spacecraft, which released its final data set in 2018. Planck observed a Hubble constant of 67.66 kilometers per second per megaparsec. The difference between 67 and 73 isn't enormous, and at first, the most likely explanation for the difference seemed to be instrument error. 
However, through subsequent observations, the error bars on these measurements have been narrowed down enough that the difference is statistically significant. A crisis indeed. Here's where the UCL researchers hope to step in. They propose a new method of measuring the Hubble constant, which does not rely in any way on the other two methods. It begins with a measurement of gravitational waves, the ripples in space-time caused by the collision of massive objects like black holes. The first gravitational waves were detected only recently, in 2015, and they haven't yet been associated with any visible collisions. As lead researcher Stephen Feeney explains, we have not yet detected light from these collisions. But advances in the sensitivity of equipment detecting gravitational waves, together with new detectors in India and Japan, will lead to a huge leap forward in terms of how many of these types of events we can detect. Gravitational waves allow us to pinpoint the location of these collisions, but we need to measure light from the collisions too if we want to measure their speed. A black hole neutron star collision might be just the type of event that would produce both. If we see enough of these collisions, we could use them to produce a new measurement for the Hubble constant. The UCL team used simulations to estimate how many black hole neutron star collisions might occur in the next decade. They found that Earth's gravitational wave detectors might pick up 3,000 of them before 2030, and of these, about 100 of them will probably also produce visible light. That would be enough. As such, by 2030, we just might have a brand new measurement of the Hubble constant. We don't know yet whether the new measurement will agree with the CMB measurements or with the CFEED Type 1A measurement or disagree with both. But the result, whatever it turns out to be, will be an important step in unraveling the puzzle. It could either put the crisis in cosmology to rest or make it more serious, forcing us to look closer at our model of the universe admit that there's, and admit that there is more we don't know about the universe than we thought. Well, that's going to do it for our program this month. Once again, I'd like to thank our sponsors, the Holt Planetarium in Napier. Once again, they are hosting the Matariki Lectures this weekend. My name is Gary Sparks. Thanks once again for listening to Starry Nights. This show was produced by and first broadcast on Radio Kidnappers, Hawke's Bay's community access radio station. Thanks to New Zealand On Air for enabling us to put Hawke's Bay voices on air.